If you would open up with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 32 to 37 this morning. 32 to 37. It's a little hard to believe, at least for me, that it's been about a year and a half since our family transitioned here. And man, has it been a year. It's about all I can say. (laughs) On one hand, the time has flown by. Um, From another perspective, it's bordered on eternal. And it's really, this pandemic has certainly blown up all of the hopes, the expectations, and the plans just simply out of the water. As you all know, every pastor comes into a church with certain expectations. And of course, every church has certain expectations on their pastors. This pastor has had expectations that I've wanted to and hoped would be fulfilled here and continue to be fulfilled here and that's where we're moving forward but this pandemic has really made things those expectations kind of um, well (laughs) thrown out to a degree there's some that I've not been able to share with you and this is a a perfect passage for the one I want to talk about this morning is is this expectation and here it is one expectation I have and it's not just an expectation because in reality all of our expectations are hopes are they not hopes of what we want. So here is one of my hopes for us as the people of God. I want us to be known as a liberal church. Just let that pause awkwardly for a moment. If you don't have your attention, hopefully I have it now. Let me explain what I mean by that with a story. Tasker Street Baptist Church is 146 years old, I believe, today. The church existed in my old neighborhood in South Philly from 1874, so predates Grace Chapel by some 40-ish years. They were recently noted in the Philadelphia Inquirer for to the community. See, they owned a row home on the same block as the church that was used for youth ministry. But for the past eight years, it sat empty, unused. They recently made the decision to gift that row home to a neighborhood organization called Miriam Medical Clinics, which is specifically focused on providing primary health care access for the black community. And let me assure you, as someone who lived in the neighborhood for 10 years, there is little to no access to primary health care. And the ones that are there are quite horrendous, as someone who actually had to go there, quite all, go there regularly. I hope you're starting to put the pieces together of what I mean. When I talk about my desire for Grace Chapel to be a liberal church, I am talking about us becoming a church that is liberal in generosity. I want us to be known as a church that is liberal in giving. 
liberal in loving our neighbors, liberal in pouring out ourselves for someone else. This is my hope and prayer and expectation, and I believe it is also God's hope, prayer, and expectation for us that we would be known in our community as a church that is liberally generous. Last week, we saw the need for us to be faithful in prayer and bold in speaking God's word, especially so in the midst of persecution. Today, I want us to see that we need to be bold not just in word, but also in deed. We need to be bold in our love to one another, specifically in our neighborly love. We need to be a liberally generous church. We need to be bold indeed. We'll continue this morning by looking at how the Lord answered the Apostles' prayer in Acts 4. 24 to 30. They prayed for boldness in speaking God's word. They prayed for the Lord to stretch out his hand to show himself powerful, and he did just that. He answered their prayer. The place they gathered and shook, they were filled with the Spirit, and the apostles and the people of God continued to speak the word of God with boldness and power. But something else happened. They became bold, not just in word, but also in deed. Follow along as I read Acts 4, verses 32 to 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. They were bold indeed. I want us to see three things this morning from this passage. The first is that the early church had great unity the early church had great unity. Secondly, the early church had great power. And third, the early church had great grace. Great unity, great power, great grace. They became known as a word-proclaiming church and a deed-focused church. They were bold and liberal with their faithful preaching, and they were bold and liberal with their faithful generosity May we become more like them. First, verse 32, the early church had great unity. Look at verse 32. Now the full number. Remember how big that number was? Some three to five thousand plus. The full number of those who believe were of one heart, one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. 
In other words, God's people were united in heart and soul and possessions. They simply shared. They had everything in common. They were united in one heart. They were united in one soul. And that unity of heart and soul led them to be able to say, for no one able to say that any of the things belonged to him was their own. They had everything in common. This is simply remarkable, especially when read in the context of Western society. Because today, when we hear these passages, all these other words come up that start scaring us. Words that have been bantered around quite a bit in the media lately, in social justice circles, and certain politicians. Socialism. Cultural Marxism. All those words are, in a sense, the latest boogeymans of today, the latest evangelical boogeymans. You know what a boogeyman is, right? No, yeah, thanks. Well, someone does. A boogeyman is simply something we don't understand, and it scares us. And maybe it scares us because we don't understand it. Socialism, cultural Marxism, and there's a countless other variants. They're, they're words that are thrown a lot, around a lot today. There's a fear that some of our political leaders are taking us down that path. There's also a fear within the church that some people who promote social justice are wanting to take us down that path. And then there's a fear when we come to passages like this that Jesus maybe even is taking us down that path. This passage before us raises some of those concerns was the early church a socialist organization? That's a question that's been asked a lot. Does the fact that they were sharing their possessions indicate and align with what we now know as modern-day cultural Marxism? And then the really pertinent question is, should we be doing this? Is this something we as the people of God should be doing? Well, let me try to answer those questions for us. I want to highlight three differences, significant differences between Christianity and what is known as cultural Marxism. They differ in their message, they differ in their mission, and they differ in their motivation. First, Christianity differs from Marxism in its message. The message of Marxism is simply that the greatest human problem is oppression and the alienation that results from it. And at the heart of this problem is that society is based on Judeo-Christian culture. And this culture, this Judeo-Christian culture, must be overthrown for society to flourish. Therefore, the working class, the ones who are oppressed, need to rise up, sometimes violently, in order to overthrow their oppressors, the capitalist class. And once this happens, a true humane society will come. Hope you ought to realize that the message of Christianity is quite different. The chief problem is not oppression and alienation. The chief problem is sin and rebellion. See, oppression and alienation are simply byproducts of a broken and sinful heart. The central message of Christianity is that God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will be saved from their sin saved from their rebellion, and brought into a new kingdom with the promise of eternal salvation. The message of Christianity is the message of a faithful covenant God saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. 
Secondly, Christianity differs from cultural Marxism in its mission. The mission of Marxism is for the oppressed to rise up and to defeat the oppressors. This often comes through violence, at least within the framework of classic Marxism. But then they make a distinction. There's now cultural Marxism, which seeks to transform society by intellectuals infiltrating the schools, the universities, the church, and media. And we see this happening today. They seek to subvert society by changing culture, by infiltrating culture. That is their mission, infiltration. What is the mission of Christianity? To glorify God by making disciples throughout the world. The mission is carried out by sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, who lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and rose again in power. It is the mission of proclamation founded upon Christ's mission and act of love. It is the mission of word and deed. Our mission is one of sacrifice, not revolt. Third, Christianity differs from Marxism in its motivation, and motivation matters significantly. The Marxist motivation is for revolution, utopia. They're motivated by overriding the desire for the complete secularization of society. Christianity stands in the way to achieve those goals. Christian motivation is done by the love of Christ. The sharing of possessions is made possible because of unity in the early church that they had with one another. This unity of heart, soul, and possessions was made possible because of the love of Christ. They weren't compelled by some authority to do it, except the love of Christ as authority that compelled them to love one another. It is out of the overflow of God's love being poured down upon them where they pour out that love to others. I hope you see the drastic difference between Christianity and socialism or Marxism. All right, philosophy lesson over. What is unfolding in this passage isn't cultural Marxism or any variation of socialism. It is simply the gospel of Christ at work. It is the radical, life-altering good news of Jesus Christ reaching into the world and transforming everything it touches. To achieve such unity of heart, soul, and possessions is only the work of the Spirit of God moving in the hearts and minds of the people of God. It's this unity Paul continues to tell us to be eager to maintain. The Spirit of God brings the unity. The people of God maintain the unity. In Ephesians 4, 3-6, he says, "Maintain, Be eager, people of God, to maintain the unity. That unity is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. This is gospel unity. Why does Paul say be eager to maintain it? Because there's countless potentials for division. Scott prayed through most of them. <laughs> Politics, theology, the pandemic. And the list goes on and on and on. And here we're reminded again in the early church, we see their faithful witness that the gospel trumps all of them. That we need to work and work hard 
in order to maintain that unity. This is what Christ wants from us, to work to maintain that unity, to be eager to maintain that unity. Jesus himself prayed for that. John 17, 20-21, Father, I pray that those who would yet believe would be one just as you and I are one, so the world may know we are one. Our unity is a proclamation of God's unity. Unity is a fruit of the gospel. When we are one, when we are sharing our possessions with one another, we declare the beauty of God's oneness. So the early church was united. They were united by praying together. They were united in proclamation together. They were even united in persecution together. United in heart and soul and overwhelmed by the love of Christ so much so that there was not a need among them. Not a need among them. Is that true for us today? Such unity and love that there is not a need among us. May we, as God's church, be united in such gospel unity. Secondly, they're united in great power. They had great power. Look at verse 33, the first part. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Once again, this confirms that Jesus answers prayer. The apostles in the early church prayed for boldness, and the Spirit gave them exactly that. With great power, you can read with great boldness. The apostles gave testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They were able to stand up in the marketplace and declare, Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. With power, boldness, passion, they proclaimed the news of Jesus Christ, the Savior. All authority in heaven and earth has been given not just to the apostles, but to us as well. Jesus declares to us, go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, and I will be with you always to the very end of the age. That same promise is made to us. That same power is given to us that same presence, the presence of the Holy Spirit is given to us. May we, with great power and boldness, give testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. May we have such power, great gospel power. The third thing is that the early church had great grace. Listen again to verses 33 to 37. Picking up in the middle of 33, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and as was distributed to each as any in need. And here we have an example of this in action. Joseph, called by the apostles Barnabas, sold a field that belonged to him and laid the money at the apostles' feet. 
the early church was marked by great grace. And see here, grace isn't some bare theological concept that Christians throw around at one another. Grace works. Grace humbles. Grace transforms. Grace unites people in heart and soul. Grace unites people to the point where they're willing to share their possessions with one another. Grace is love in action. Do we have such great grace flowing through our lives? Are others able to say of us, as they said of the early church, there's not a single person in need among them? Tim Keller, in his book, Generous Justice, a book I recommend, talks about the importance, he describes it, of reweaving shalom into all of life. Now, shalom is the peace of God that's been shattered through the fall. Sin has affected every square inch of creation, but Jesus Christ has come, and through his saving work on the cross, he is redeeming men and women and children in order to reweave shalom back into the broken fabric of life. It's that part of God's kingdom plan to make all things new. Listen as Keller writes. The only way to reweave and strengthen the fabric of this fallen world is by weaving yourself into it. Human beings are like those threads thrown together onto a table. If we keep our money, time, and power to ourselves, for ourselves, instead of sending them out into our neighbors' lives, then we may be literally on top of one another, but we are not interwoven socially, relationally, financially, and emotionally. He says, reweaving shalom means to sacrificially thread, lace, and press your time, goods, power, and resources into the lives and needs of others. God's word calls us to reweave shalom into the lives of our friends, neighbors, and relatives. It calls us to sacrificially thread, lace, and press our time, goods, power, and resources into those lives. It calls us to take the great grace we have received through Christ and to pour it out to others out of the overflow of God's grace poured out to us we seek to reweave his peace, his grace, his mercy back into this broken world. Just as the early church was driven by great gospel grace, my hope and prayer is that we would be known as a church with great gospel grace. In wrapping up, I just want to offer some thoughts, some brief reminders, seven or so very brief thoughts on how this plays out. First, giving hurts. It's actually supposed to. It's called a sacrifice. But it's a good type of hurt. It's a sharing of burdens with one another. If it doesn't hurt, we have to ask ourselves, are we really giving sacrificially? So I had Scott read 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5, just again, Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. 
for they gave according to their means, and as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, willingly, a church in poverty gave above and beyond to the point of it hurting. That is sacrifice. The second point is that we have far more than we realize. We have far more than we realize. For those who have been overseas, for those who have been to the inner city, for those who have been other places, you realize how much we really have. The Macedonians were suffering affliction and persecution, but they had joy. And in their poverty, the very little they had, they gave sacrificially. They gave not just what they could afford, they gave actually to the point of it hurting. What an example for us. Third thing is that our motivation matters. We are to give out of the overflow of God's grace. We don't give under the compulsion of guilt. It should not be the guilt of a preacher reading a text, but the grace of Christ flowing through you that you want to allow that to overflow to others. Christ's love must compel us. Fourth, giving is not just about money. Our time, our resources, indeed our very lives are what Paul describes as living sacrifices. Yes, we should give our money, but far more valuable is our time and our very lives. Are we generous not just with our wallets, but also with our time? Fifth, I'm going to briefly take the awkward moment to talk about church tithe, because it's kind of related. First of all, I don't really like the word tithe. It's tied to the Old Testament sacrificial system, which was fulfilled in Christ. And if you actually do the research, we have this conception in our minds that tithe is, a, is 10%. It's actually closer to 22%. And I think most of us are a little more unwilling to give that 22%. But here's the thing that I like actually better is the New Testament word here used even in 2 Corinthians 8 is the offering. Offering is tied with the sacrificial system, continues throughout today. So making an offering is an act of worship, is an act of grace, it is an act of sacrifice, it is a sacrifice of praise. It is something we are to do. Our giving to Grace Chapel helps others. For those of you who know, we have the benevolence ministry, and that helps others. I can personally attest to being helped to say that someone, without going into too much details, after I mentioned our car breaking down last week and all the headache of that, one of the deacons in kindness and love reached out and said, you know what, we'd like to help you. <laughs> and I said, thank you, because we could use the help. That is how it's supposed to work. That is taking our possessions, sharing them with one another. That's why giving to the church is important because it allows things like that to unfold and take place. Here's a sixth thing. We can maintain theological integrity while flourishing in liberal generosity. It always bothers me that all the theological liberals, the ones who've given up on Christ, are often the most giving. That's broken. 
Why is it the ones who are most radical in their abandonment of all things in this world and giving up everything for the sake of the others, they've also given up Christ? We as a people who hold fast to Christ should be more giving, more loving, more passionate because of Christ. The love of Christ is what compels us so we can have theological depth and theological truth and we can also live as liberal people with our generosity, with our gifts, with our resources, with our time. Seventh thing, giving is for everyone who claims to follow Christ. This is not the responsibility of those who have money. This is not the responsibility of those who are more spiritual. This is the responsibility of everyone who says, I have decided to follow Jesus. Giving sacrificially is not an optional part of the Christian life. And if I could throw in an eighth and final one, pandemics do not remove this responsibility of giving. If anything, pandemics heighten our need and responsibility to sacrificially give so that others in need from this pandemic may be cared for. Brothers and sisters, my hope and prayer and expectation for us as a church is that we would be united with such great gospel unity, that we would be empowered with such great gospel power, and that we would be driven by such great gospel grace so that people will not be able to say there's needy there, so that people would see our unity of heart and soul, to see that we are willingly sharing our possessions with one another because the love of Christ poured out to us. Out of the overflow of that love, we seek to love others. Father, we confess our selfish hearts. We confess that we like keeping things to ourselves. We confess that we like our comforts. We confess that we like things, stuff. We confess the times of, we confess the lengths of our Amazon wish list and how this is a direct affront to what you want of us. We confess that we spend more time looking at those wish lists, wanting what we can have fulfilled instead of the wish lists of others and how we can fulfill them. Father, help us to focus less on ourselves. Start with me. Focus less on myself and what I want and help turn this ungiving, ungenerous heart to a heart that wants to give because of what you, Jesus, have done for me at the cross. Father, help us to be a united church, a united people. Help us to know and experience your great power. And Father, help your great grace to flow through our lives in such a way that we will be known as liberally generous people so that you would be glorified and others would receive good so that the name of Christ would be high and lifted up. And it is in that great name, the name that is above every name, the name that will provide all of our needs, the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.